Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Conservatism is really about wanting the future to be like the past, and authoritarianism is a preference for order and safety over uh, diversity and change. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So listeners of the show know that, that one of my obsessions is that a lot of our political conflict right now happens on top of demographic change, that, that we're a country undergoing a quite historic shift, an historically rapid shift, where our racial composition is changing, our religious composition is changing, we are moving towards having a record share of Americans be foreign-born, um, our uh, gender uh, power dynamics are changing, and that all of this change forms the context for a lot of our political conflict, a context that is only occasionally, in fact, I think very rarely addressed on its own as opposed to its manifestations serving as, as the, the zone of political conflict. So I'm always fascinated and, and interested to talk with other people who are, are trying to trying to address it on that level, but, but, but in much of Europe as well, and the way it is eliciting a, a populist backlash. And something I think is, is valuable about Eric's book, probably for somebody who, who thinks about these things in, in the way I do, is that it, on the one hand, takes that demographic change very seriously. And on the other hand, it comes to some conclusions about it that I think are very popular in our politics, but are, are, are rarely stated explicitly. Um, conclusions about what white majorities will accept, conclusions about the ways in which they need to be calmed down uh, if politics is to remain stable, um, and conclusions about where the left has gone too far. These are, in many ways, not conclusions I share, but I do think it is important, I think it's um, valuable to have like the core conversation here. And I think White Shift is a, is a book that actually tries to have it and is willing to state itself and its assumptions in a way that is much more clear than a lot of what I consider to be trying to, to be in this space right now. So I was grateful to Eric for being on the show. I think this is a, an important and an interesting conversation. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. If you've got guest requests, feedback, whatever, again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Eric Kaufman. Eric Kaufman, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So give me the big picture. What is the white shift? Well, white shift really has two meanings. There's kind of a white shift 1.0 and a white shift 2.0. The, the white shift 1.0 is really about the next sort of 50 years where the white majorities, the ethnic majorities in Western countries will be in decline. Uh, and in some cases, relatively quick decline. And in that, that's sort of the backdrop, I think, for a lot of the uh, national populism, the right-wing populism, and also the polarization uh, that we see. But there's also another meaning uh, to the term white shift, which is a more long-term uh, meaning, which is really what I'm arguing in the book is that white ethnic majorities will uh, 
in the long term, as we get into the next century, uh, begin to morph into mixed race majorities. However, that they would they will retain a narrative connection back to the collective memory of the original uh, white majority. So they're expanding through voluntary assimilation and intermarriage, um, and so that that will ultimately resolve many of the issues thrown up, if you like, by one white shift 1.0. And so this is an idea that, uh, among other things, we look at the demographic projections and we say, well the Hispanic population is growing very rapidly. And and what you're saying, which a lot of demographers I think agree with, is well, a lot of those people will end up identifying as white, marrying into white families, and that there's a, a kind of continuous pull, at least in America, but in other places too, where whiteness expands to, to include new entrants. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's sort of the argument I'm making, although I think the the valence, if you like, if you're mixed, say, Latino white or, or, or Latino Asian or, or black white, etc., in today's societies, which are still dominated by quote-unquote unmixed white majorities, then the minority part of one's identity is more salient in many ways. Uh, but if you imagine a time in the future when there are very few uh, unmixed whites, and so, for example, in the in the case of, of Canada, if you look at the projections, and, and w- which I have, it looks something like a country which was 80% white in 2006, 20% minority, and yet in 2106, it'll be the reverse, sort of 20% unmixed white, if you like, 80% mixed race and non non-white. And so that's a very different world. And also the globe as a whole, uh, uh, whites become a much, much smaller share. And I think that will simply mean that the white part is is going to be that much more salient or relevant for this mixed race population. But yes, you're right. There is this expansion, if you like. I, I hesitate to sort of talk about whiteness as much as, as some, auth- some other authors, simply because I think there's a distinction between the racial category, uh, the piece of the color spectrum, if you like, the phenotypical spectrum spectrum, which we can call white, and the ethnic majority, which may have the proper name white, let's say white American. Uh, it used to be the case, for example, that the ethnic majority in, in, say, the United States was narrower than the racial white group. So white ethnics, white Catholics and Jews were not fully members of that ethnic majority. And I think, however, going forward, the, uh, the ethnic majority will be wider rather than narrower than that racial category. So you'll have people who don't look white, if you like, but who would uh, identify with and, and be considered, maybe not at a first pass, but certainly in terms of once people got talking with them, members of that majority. So I want to bracket some uh, some of these projections because I think they're they're really interesting right. and they're going to figure very much into into our discussion about what comes next. But but I want to pull back into into the political theory of the book. One of the things I valued about this book quite a bit is it shares something with an argument I've been making and thinking about for some time, which is that a lot of our politics right now are taking place within the context of quite rapid demographic change. And it's something we don't talk about all that well, but once you begin to see it that way, everything looks to be part of it, right? It's one of these dynamics. It seems to explain uh, a quite tremendous amount of our ideological movements, changes, fights, dynamics. Um, So you write that the big question of our time is is less what does it mean to be American than what does it mean to be white American in an age of ethnic change? Why is that the big question? 
Because the nation-state America, if you like, uh, is not under a great deal of pressure from, say, invading armies or ideologies as during the Cold War, so the pressure on, in terms of territorial revision is not particularly great. Where the pressure is, is on the ethnic majorities within the nation-states uh, in, in, in terms of voluntary migration. Uh, and so that is what's becoming much more salient because that's really where the change is. And there's a whole field which I've been involved with uh, called political demography, which looks at the effect of population change on politics. And this is part of it. What's happening worldwide is we're in the midst of a sort of demographic revolution where roughly 98% of the world's population growth is taking place in the developing world, which is still undergoing its demographic transition. Whereas the developed world has already passed through that is in, and is experiencing population decline, population aging. So the, the pressure, the migration pressure, both economically and demographically, is driving these changes. And if you look historically, there are some examples which we can look at where you have these rapid ethno-demographic changes. Almost always you tend to have, and in democracies, you tend to have these, these populist responses. So I think it's not particularly surprising to see what we're seeing now in, uh, in Europe and North America. So one of the things you say in the book, which converges with something Jennifer Richardson, a, a past guest on this podcast and someone who I believe whose research you quote a couple times in the, in the book, says is that rising diversity in a country tends to trigger two responses. One is conservatism and the other is authoritarianism. Do you, do you want to unpack that a bit? Right. So these are two uh, slightly different uh, constructs. Cons uh, conservatism is really about wanting the future to be like the past. And authoritarianism is a preference for order and safety over uh, diversity and change. They're not exactly the same thing in the sense that you could imagine, for example, if the United States Southeast, which has a historic African-American population, was becoming less African-American and more white over time. The authoritarians might see that positively. In uh, white authoritarians might say, ah, oh, the society is becoming more homogenous less different, less diverse, so they may be happy. But the conservatives who remember this society with African-Americans and whites in it will lament the loss of that diversity. So that's an, that, that can show you where conservatism and authoritarianism might work at cross purposes. However- Can I hold you there for one second? Because I think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting point. I think that people, when they discuss conservatism, they normally frame it in terms of its economic self-presentation, at least. You know, if you ask 20 people on the street, what do conservatives believe? It'd be stuff about taxes and, and so on. So why do you say conservatism is about wanting the, the future to be more like the past? What, what gives you confidence in that description? Right. This is the uh, what Karen Stenner, a social psychologist, would call status quo conservatism, which is an orientation which has been measured and, and validated uh, in the social psychology research. So this is really about attachment to existing states of affairs. I mean, in normative political theory, there is uh, the work of G.A. Cohen has talked about attachment to existing things, which is really the core of conservatism. So, so for Cohen, for example, being attached to a current national landscape, historic buildings is not different in kind, say, from being attached to a particular ethnic composition of a town. So in a way, this is an important orientation. And you're right, it runs very much against a lot of what might be called neoliberalism or a kind of libertarian style conservatism, which is is prominent in the United States, but, but also in Western European countries. So it's very different from right wing, left wing. In a way, the, pol the way politics is shifting is moving away from that, to some extent, economic left right, which is to do with redistribution versus the welfare state towards this preference for diversity and change versus preference for yeah, 
order and continuity. And I think that's kind of a key. Uh, it's yeah. funny because one of the things uh, I'm thinking about as you say that is I was just reading a paper by John Jost, the, the New York University political psychologist. And he is a, I'm worried I'm going to get this wrong from memory, but I didn't expect us to talk about it. So <laughs> um, he, he talks about the idea that the left-right uh, divide, which has gone back you know a couple hundred years now, that it tends to include two dimensions. One is this sort of future more like the past dimension you're talking about, and particularly that has a, a real ethnic dimension, and this this dimension around equality and inequality. And he locates both of them in, in the same idea, actually. If you if you have a if you have a society that is relatively unequal, being concerned about arguments for equality, which would mean arguments for redistribution and upending existing social orders, also attaches to a fear of change or also can elicit a fear of change and a desire for, for the future to be more like the past. And so his argument is that these these ultimately have somewhat similar psychological foundations. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how that reads to you. <laughs> well, I I guess I wouldn't be as convinced by that. I mean, I think, I, I guess I would, Stenner, for example, talks about this idea that inequality is to some extent disorderly to an authoritarian, so that actually um, the authoritarian response to inequality may be to say, uh, I would like more equality. So, so authoritarians in many ways are can be pro-equality simply because that's a less, uh, is a more ordered state. Um, and so, and in a way, this kind of helps us to understand some of what's going on, particularly in uh, national populism in Western Europe, where a lot of the main uh, right-wing populist parties have actually tacked left on economic issues. Uh, and the support of white working class uh, voters for, for these populist right parties, I think, fits with that. So I guess I wouldn't quite see, I would definitely see these as separate dimensions. Right. So you could, you could imagine a party, um, if you're American, right, and you're not familiar right. with this kind of party, it's a party more like what many people thought Donald Trump might represent, uh, a party where on the one hand you have a real vision of the ethnostate and you have a conservative attachment to America as it once was, or at least an idea of America as it once was. But on the other hand, you're promising that everybody's going to get health care and rich guys like me should be taxed more. He did not govern as that person, but that arrangement uh, of economic and social ideology is, is more common in Europe. Um, than it is here. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, th th there is, you know, I think that definitely was part of Trump's appeal. And I know, for example, Ashley Jardina, who's who's written on, on white identity politics and shows that the support for, for example, social security and, security and Medicare uh, amongst Trump supporters, that they're actually to the left economically. If you look at primary uh, voting, they were distinguished sig significantly by being to the left on on uh, economically. So yeah, I think that is really the, the key matrix. And of course, you saw that combination, you've seen it in, in the American past with progressivism and populism at the turn of the 20th century. But then it kind of went away as the parties aligned uh, on that left-right economic dimension. But maybe that's coming back. I mean, I don't know if you saw that graph by Lee Drutman, which I think was about a year or two ago, where they showed that a lot of uh, Republican voters were really in that sort of really in the center on economic issues and not not towards the libertarian end. Um, and so that's, I think, very much the spot that uh, that Trump recruited from. Although, as you say, he hasn't actually governed uh, to the left at all economically. Yeah, the Republican Party to me is a is a institution that generates a lot of momentum from social conservatism from ethnostate considerations and works extremely hard at the elite level to channel it into economic, what we would call economic conservatism, but 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 a sort of right-wing economic philosophy in a way that I think is interesting. Um, that said, 
Uh, up until here, I think this is a conversation that, that listeners of the podcast are going to be relatively familiar with. But 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 you take this in in a series of of directions that I think are are, are not as common. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the way in which? Um, why don't you talk a little bit about left modernism? Because I think that's going to be an important concept for for understanding your theory here. Right. Okay. So I think that if we think about uh, the development of ideologies, um, people understand what socialism is. It's really about the material sphere, economic redistribution, Marxism, ownership of the means of production, and and we understand what fascism is to some extent. Um, both of these ideologies in the 20th century died in in a way they experienced, you know, limits. However, there is a sort of fusion of um, the left and of a kind of liberalism, which is an important ideology, which I think actually came through unscathed through the two world wars and is kind of coming to fruition or reaching a kind of zenith now. Uh, and this is a kind of cultural radicalism, what was what has sometimes been called the lyrical left, and it, its roots go back to utopian socialism uh, and also the bohemianism of the mid, starting in the mid 19th century, moving into the early 20th century. And that actually is what's what Daniel Bell calls modernism, the, the uh, New York intellectual or sociologist Daniel Bell. And this is really an anti-traditionalist orientation. You can see it most clearly in modern art, where it's a, uh, where people are moving away from form and, and toward experimentation, novelty, difference, uh, and away from tradition. So that sort of modernist thrust is, is existing. But that can take a right-wing form, as in fascist art. Uh, but it also has a left-wing form, surrealism, uh, but but also a blending of some of the concerns of socialism with this anti-traditionalism. And it's interesting to see where, where the older socialism clashes with uh, modernism. One area uh, where you see that is on, on issues around race, for example. So uh, concern with race, gender, some, was sometimes attacked as bourgeois in the early 20th century by socialists. Uh, modern art and experimentation in art was also derided uh, and, and by or socialists who were doctrinaire who said, well, what we really need now is proletarian art when, and, and then we're going to toe the line from Moscow. And you saw that there was a clash between modernism and socialism. But what's occurred through after the World War II, I think, has been a fusion then of this anti-traditionalist and, and this cultural, very much cultural form of egalitarianism. And I think that is what we're living through now. That you. You had small circles of intellectuals, the young intellectuals in uh, Greenwich Village, New York, for example, in the 1912 to 17 period, or the New York intellectuals, or the Bloomsbury set, perhaps. You had small groups of bohemian intellectuals in the early 20th century holding these views. But then in the 1960s, as, as Bell writes, these very much scale up. Uh, with the expansion of the university sector, with the expansion of television. And this begins to permeate the mass culture. And I think it explains a lot of where the high culture has headed and a lot of the kind of direction um, of, of the high culture. And, and that high culture is in some ways colliding then with the sort of traditional society which it was in some ways a repudiation of, and part of the polarization, or a large part of it, I would argue, is a clash between this rising idea of left modernism, this fusion of the cultural left and, and modernism, really clashing with, I think, the identities of, of a significant chunk of the conservative uh, white majorities of many Western countries. So, somewhat to my surprise there, although in a way I, I thought was interesting. 
But I want to pull you back because you talked a lot more there about art preferences and about race. <laughs> and I think the way you explain right. this in the book has a lot more to do with the, the way you see left modernism. Um, and I, I would call what I think you're really talking about often in the book is the idea that there's a left modernist personality that would, on a psychological dimension, score very high on, say, openness, that is attracted to dramatic ideas of change and has magnetically um, fastened on to racial change as its core animating project. Um, first, you can tell me if that if that's a reasonable rendition of your idea, but but second, if it is, I'd, I think you should talk about that a bit. Yes. So one of the key outriders, really, of the rise of left modernism um, is a preference for cosmopolitanism. So cosmopolitanism is absolutely at the core of these ideas. Uh, and issues of ethnicity and race are central. So this begins really in the early 20th century with, in particular, one figure, Randolph Bourne, and one of the young intellectuals, uh, sort of seen as an avatar of the bohemian youth culture of that period, who says really that he criticizes his own Anglo-Protestant ethnic group and says, you know, we should, we're, we're parochial, we're uninteresting, uh, we're puritanical, we should sort of transcend our ethnic identity and become cosmopolitan and enjoy what the Jews have to offer, what the African Americans with their jazz, they're much more expressive, has to offer. Uh, and, and that really is the, the model of society, this sort of multicultural model, but with the caveat that the, uh, the, the white Protestant majority sort of divests itself with its ethnicity. And the problem that I see there is you have a mixed message. There's a contradiction. On the one hand, the majority is being encouraged to uh, to lose its culture, to be individualistic. Uh, on the other hand, minorities are urged to retain their culture, to be communitarian and conservative. And Bourne is very scathing about minorities who assimilate, claiming that they're assimilating into this vacuous and um, you know stuffy culture, and they really shouldn't do that. So I think this is this contradiction really between conservatism for minorities, individualism for majorities is, is kind of coming home to roost. Um, and I think it's actually not particularly productive because the problem in a way is that psychologically, there are people who prefer diversity and change and people who prefer uh, order and continuity and roots. And that that orientation is distributed relatively equally amongst the ethnic groups. So now you've got a problem because some groups are being urged to be diverse and or to appreciate diversity and novelty when really what they want to do is maintain a tradition. And I think that's where the rubber is kind of hitting the road on populism. So so let's jump into those some groups. Um, the group that you're talking about here is being challenged in this way primarily is, is a white ethnic majority. And I'm going to focus our conversation in America because I more or less cover American politics, but, but you, you talk about it elsewhere too. And one of the things you say that I think is an important thing, is an important insight to discuss explicitly is that ethnic majorities express their ethnic identity as nationalism. Can, can you talk a bit about the way national stories are, are ethno-national stories? Right. Okay. So, yeah, it's a bit tricky. In a way, if you are heterosexual, for example, you are ten you're not going to tend to be uh, aware of that identity because everybody else more or less is going to have that identity. And so there is an extent to which um, ethnic majorities simply see themselves as the norm and as members of the nation. However, you do see a distinction, for example, if you if you ask people in Britain, for example, uh, you know, do you need to have British ancestry to be quote unquote truly British? Not 
to be British, but to be truly British, then you'll get 51% saying yes. They don't mean that you can't be a member of the British nation, which is nation being the political territorial construct, but they are kind of signaling that to be a member of the ethnic, the sort of community of shared ancestry, then yes, you do kind of have to have ancestry. And I think there's something similar. It's a bit more tricky in the United States case because you've got long-standing Afri African-American population as well. but. There's a tendency really to express um, the ethnicity through the idiom of nationhood because the ethnicity is in some ways hidden at the core within the national identity. So the way it gets expressed tends to be as a kind of real or true or authentic form of what people would call uh, national identity, but it's actually about ethnic identity. And, and, and so your sense of politics right now, as I read it from the book, is that you have a collision between a Democratic Party that increasingly represents this left modernist approach to change where diversity is great, um, changing demographics are great, America becoming something it wasn't is great, and this Republican Party that represents the ethnic majority in this country, the white majority, that is very, very um, unnerved by those changes and that feels its fundamental story of Americanness under challenge and also feels that it's being treated unfairly. Um, and and that, that this collision, which at other times has been suppressed in one way or another, is now because of demographic change and because of communication technologies and whatever else, is now erupting into being the, the, the core collision. And I'm not sure that's such an unusual argument, but I think the one place you take it that a lot of people don't take it explicitly is that, that that's dangerous and that the way that that white majority is being treated is um, playing with fire and people need to rethink it, particularly on the left. Well, I'm not sure I, I would go as far as to say it's dangerous because I don't try and I don't do the scare mongering thing. But what I do say is it is contributing very much to this polarization at, that these are really two different visions in you, if you like, of of America. And, and both have existed in the past in, in, in many ways. It's just that the uh, in the high culture, the diversity-based, cosmopolitan-based Americanism is very ascendant now. Uh, in a way, it, it wasn't to the same extent in the past. And what I would you know, certainly favor would be room for both versions of Americanism to be expressed, but with a recognition that there is no single way to be American and that, that these are just different ways in which people attach to the nation. Um, the problem, in a way, is when you get pressure to, to say that there is only really one way to be American, and that is to be celebrating diversity and novelty and change, that that isn't going to sort of square with people who aren't wired that way. Now, it's important, too, to, to, to recognize a distinction between the white ethnic majority, but there are also there is also the national identity, which is not the same. Again, that's the territorial political unit. It's not the same as the largest um, group that's based on shared ancestry. So the territorial political unit actually entails for some Americans a traditional ethnic composition which they would like to see change more slowly and it's not just actually white Americans but conservative Hispanics and Asians also can be what I call ethno-traditional nationalists that is they they are attached to America in a certain particular guise and they would like to see it change less frequently so I do cite sort of um, a survey that was taken after the uh, the Charlottesville uh, riots that showed, in fact, that, that Asian and Hispanic Trump voters had 
pretty much identical views to white Trump voters with regard to so-called preserving and protecting white Christian traditions in America. So I think it's actually broader than just the ethnic majority, but it's it's really both of these forces, conservative members of the ethnic majority, but also ethno-traditional minorities who are attached to a version of American nationhood, which encompasses a particular ethnic composition. I, I want to draw you out a bit here because um, everything you're saying is super thoughtful, um, but it's a bit heady. And the book is a quite stinging critique of the left as it's currently composed in, in America, but in other countries as well. And I, and I want to pull that out a bit because I think it forms uh, an interesting argument. So I'll, to put my cards on the table, something I think is very valuable about this book is that it is explicit about parts of what is going on in our politics in a way that that most books that take its position aren't. And then it takes its position sort of clearly, which is to say that my sense of the book is, you know, it, it is a book about how the left has gone too far in a way that is potentially destabilizing for society. But it is also a book that is about how, in some ways, the, the left's understanding of the power structures being an ethno-nationalist power structure is correct. It just that that does not itself permit a rejection of that power structure. Now, that may not be the correct characterization of it, but but I do I want to pull that piece of it out because I, I want to make right. sure... Um, you, you've, I think, entered this debate with a lot more clarity than most people have, and so I want to make sure we reflect that here. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, that's right. I think that there is an important uh, element of left overreach um, on the left modernist overreach, and that is a confusion between conservatism and racism. So the expansion of the term racism to encompass those who are attached to uh, a particular uh, ethnic matrix or who wanted to, to who, who favorites changing more slowly to allow or permit assimilation. Um, that is typically referred to as racist. And I think in that, I think, shuts down the conversation. And I think it's also a mistake, again, because the social psychology literature and Marilyn Brewer's work in particular um, shows very clearly that attachment to in-group, sort of in-group love, if you like, and out-group hate are not correlated, except in times of uh, conflict, zero-sum conflict. And in fact, if you look at the American National Election Study, you find that on a zero to 100 thermometer warmth, white people who have warmth towards whites are no cooler towards blacks than white people who don't have warmth towards whites. Um, and this is all part of, of, of me saying that in a way what I think is occurring here is a pathologization uh, of ethnic identity or ethno-traditional identity by the left, which I think is leading to a lot of misunderstandings. I think it would be better to say, okay, let's, let's just say people are attached to their ethnicity or they're attached to a particular ethnic composition in the nation. That attachment to one's own is not the same thing as hatred of the outgroup. Now, of course, it is possible that attachment to one's own can lead one to discriminate, and that is an important conversation uh, to also have. So it's very important not to uh, allow for uh, you know mistreatment of people, uh, you know, not treating people people equally under the law. But provided that people are attempting to treat people equally uh, under the law, I think this just this attachment to own group should not be pathologized. And I think the fact that it is the fact that there is sort of nostalgia and lamentation, for example, and a desire to say, slow down the, the rate of immigration, for example, uh, and to talk positively about one's group, that, that that should be labeled in the high culture. Again, because of this left modernist orientation, that if you do not embrace and celebrate diversity and change, then you are a you know nativist, xenophobe, racist, etc. I think that very sort of stark black and white dichotomization 
uh, really shuts down the debate. We need to get into the, that shades of gray and, and start to sort of debate, okay, it's faster, slower. It's not open, closed. It's not stark like that. I, so those are the kinds of productive conversations I wish we could have in our politics, but, but which we're not having because of this recourse to uh, deviantization by, by use of the term racism. So um, I, I want to put a pin in treatment under the law and, and definitions of racism because I want to come back to that. But, but, but I, I want to draw um, something out that you're saying here because I think it's interesting. So one of the arguments you make in the book and that, that you're making here is that the left is trying to impose a, like a linguistic or, or norms-based construct on, on discourse, which is that it is proper and wonderful to celebrate diversity and it's proper and wonderful to celebrate different uh, other cultures. Um, and it is not proper and not wonderful to celebrate white culture, right? And that, you know, and this is a little bit of the like, why can't we have white history month? Um, why can't we have like a white pride club at college when, you know, if there's going to be all these other kinds of clubs for people taking pride in, in, in their community? Um, is, that a, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that is a fair way of putting it. I mean, I think I would I would certainly go along with the view that essentializing race, so believing there's some kind of inherent characteristics just because you have a particular skin color is is racism. So I'm I'm certainly not going against that. But one of the things that I find didn't appear in the book is that if you take Americans of Northern and Western uh, European ancestry, um, their attachment to ancestry is heavily correlated to their attachment to white identity. And that my own read on this is that it's much more of a cultural attachment than it is really about wanting power and wanting to keep minorities down, which is typically the way it's portrayed and I don't think is actually true to the facts. It's very rarely that you see any sort of evidence uh, or systematic analysis behind that claim that whiteness is just about power and hierarchy. Um, I think we have to be we have to be open to the idea that, that you know, whites, like other ethnic groups, again, are attached to myths and symbols and collective memories. And you know, in the United States case, for because of all the intermarriage, um, you do have got this emergent European American group, which, uh, and I think that it's it's sort of the pathologization of attachment to that group, uh, which I think is contributing very negatively to to our politics. Let me push on that a little bit because that it rings as a little bit evasive of the argument being made, in in, in my view, in in, in this way. Um, it is certainly true, and I, I I take the point that people can have an attachment to the group that. Is not about power. That is not about resources. But but I think something that, that you show here, something that Ashley Jardina's research shows, that, that other people's work has shown, is that one of the things happening as demography changes is that white identity is getting stronger. As white identity becomes somewhat more disconnected from just national identity, as you have to actually say, like I'm a white person. I'm not just an American because American means white person. Now you're beginning to get more of a of a of a movement towards this white identity, and I think what a lot of the critics here would say, and and I think I would probably put myself in this camp, is that, well, that is, I mean, that's a kind of first, that's like a first eruption, but but it is about power, right? The fact that these things are, are correlated with you know Barack Obama becoming president, Donald Trump becoming president. Yes, you can certainly have it without it being partially about power, but but what's what's arousing it is this concern about. Power and that whenever there's kind of a movement that does redistribute the power somewhat, there's this very sharp pushback. And so, one of the hard things in this conversation is that a lot of folks look around at this country and they say, yes, it, the power here is structured in a way that was really, that has been really unfair and remains to this day 
quite unfair. And it's bound up in these ideas of who belongs and who doesn't and what is normal and what isn't. And so on the one hand, the, you're, the, the argument that sometimes is pathologized, I think, has a lot of merit. But on the other hand, I think you're not quite giving credence to the argument that when people jump up and say, you know, America really is a, a sort of ethnostate identity and we have to, even as we've just begun to get some of these shifts in power, all of a sudden big concessions need to be made to it rhetorically, symbolically, and, and probably um, in, in political process as well, rather than continuing with some of this redistribution. That's where you get into to the question of, well, are you really talking about warmth? Or are you really talking about power that is being expressed through warmth? Right, and I guess, and I'm certainly open to to that argument, but I, I, and I guess, I just am not convinced by the empirical evidence that it is about power and not about culture. You know, you can look to Europe, for example, where we're seeing what I think are very, very similar responses. I don't think you could argue that uh, the ethnic change in Europe really threatens the power of white majorities, who are pretty overwhelming. You know, the kinds of questions that really correlate very strongly with uh, support for right-wing populism are, for example, uh, things in America were better in the past, agree, disagree. Um, but when you probe that even further, it's and you ask, well, is it about the American economy or is it about American culture? It's all American culture. So it's the culture, that loss of, that sense of a loss of, uh, of culture that is really behind this, I think, much more so than a loss of economic power. Um, so I, again, I could be, you know, I'm open to being persuaded, but I often see this power argument used a lot without proper operationalization of that or measurement of what do we mean by power and, and how are you going to refute the cultural arguments that this is much more about attachment to symbols. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to, yeah. Oh, I agree with this actually. And let me try to offer a synthesis because I actually think that the lack of clarity around what people mean by power and how society is changing really contributes to, to conflict and, and particularly to misunderstanding of conflict. So when I look at American culture right now, and again, I'll focus on America because I know it best, what I see is the diversifying country has redistributed cultural power quite dramatically in the last, let's say, 15 years. I mean, to, to use just the most obvious example, the power of claims for cultural representation, who stars in movies, who is shown on television shows, who is in music, that's a very hot um, debate in American life. And it's a hot debate in a way that is leading to real change. Um, casting decisions are made really differently than they were 15 years ago. And one of the things that I always find interesting in this debate is that a lot of folks who um, are on the, let's say, the, the conservative side of it will, on the one hand, mock uh, claims for representation and its importance, and on the other hand, be quite upset as it changes. And, and I take that as meaning sort of on both ends of this, that cultural representation and cultural power is really important. And everything from, you know, Obama as a symbol, a, a black president, all the way to, you know, Oscars so white being a hashtag, all the way to Gamergate reflects this. And these are these are real these are real fights that matter to people's understanding of, of, of their role in the country. And I think that um, they, they need to be taken quite seriously. On the other hand, I don't think economic power has changed at all, really. Um, in, and I think one of the crit criticisms a lot of liberals, and including a lot of um, more left black uh, political thinkers have made of Obama, is he did very little to change economic power in this country. The racial wealth gap, I believe, increased under his watch, didn't decrease. It's not like there was some um, reparations uh, program passed. And so one of the things that, that seems to me to infect our politics is now this 
confusion over what is even happening with power because people are talking about different things. And so you'll have, you know, on the one hand, people saying nothing's changing, you know, and and, and the society is getting worse and, and more racist. And they're often talking about economic and to some degree um, political power and people saying society is changing, you know, and there's so much diversity and, and, and things are moving too fast. And they're often talking about cultural power, much of it emanating out of, out of California. And I, I think there's a real tension in all that because power is not moving all in the same ways all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting, <laughs> interesting points. I mean, I think you're right. For example, about uh, cultural, yeah, cultural power representation shifting, and I think that's all to the good. I think that should be, uh, you know, should represent what the nation looks like. However, I still think you can differentiate uh, that from attachment to what you knew growing up, the, the country you knew, the particular ethnic composition that you knew as distinct or orthogonal in many ways from this notion of people not getting an equal chance to be on television, for, for, for example. I'm not sure that is really what's driving it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, sure there are ways one could devise a test or an experiment to try and sort of prize these, these things apart. I mean, I think certainly in the European case, again, this is where we're seeing very similar things happening. I mean, I, this is really not what's driving the issue. It's, it's very much about changes to to the the, the nation uh, that the people know. So I mean I guess well, what do, what do you suspect those changes are? Like what do you suspect is driving it? Well, I I think it's simply that people have a, a, a what I call ethno traditional nationalism, which I think is not the same as ethnic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is is a term that means to be a member of the nation, an equal member of the nation, you must be a member of the ethnic majority. The ethno traditional nationalism, which is the profile we see in a lot of the survey data, is very few people say you must be white to be British or, or Swedish, for example. Uh, so there there there's no question of of a minority being an equal member of the nation, but they are attached to uh, a particular ethnic composition of the nation, they don't, don't want that to change as quickly. And I think it's it's that change, really, that uh, which kind of, I think if you are conservative, status quo conservative oriented, um, or if you're order, you know, the, the, the authoritarian oriented, then those are unsettling. Those changes are unsettling. It could be even at the neighborhood level. So we've seen with the Brexit vote, for example, areas that had rapid ethnic change tended to have an elevated uh, Brexit vote amongst the white British population. Uh, and something similar in the United States with immigration, views on immigration in areas that previously were relatively white and had a rapid Latino influx. So I think this is partly about just changes to people's environment or the narratives that they know. And, and that's really what, in a way, Cohen uh, and this idea of uh, conservatism, uh, for him anyway, it could be attachment to a historic building that's getting torn down. It's very much the same response. Or it could be you're in Harlem and you're African-American and your neighborhood is changing through gentrification and, and you miss the old Harlem. I mean, it's not... This is, again, part of that status quo conservative orientation. Um, so I'm not entirely convinced that, that really this is so much about the, the loss of power in a way that... I mean, again, I'm open to to being convinced otherwise, but I would really like to see that that power construct measured better and, and compared better with something that is more purely about attachment to the familiar, to the way of life, to, to symbols. Well, one of the things I often think about in this conversation is how are people experiencing this change? So, so some of the data that Jennifer Richardson shared with me that has been very influential in my thinking has been that when you poll people, they believe America is already a majority minority country. 
Um, and that's true. And by the way, not just for whites, it's true for African-Americans, for Asians, for, I believe for Hispanics as well. So everybody believes that the demographic change of America is 20 or 30 or 40 years ahead of where it actually is, that the whole country looks like California, not um, not like it actually does. And you know, you you make the good point that both in in America and the UK, you have had more movement towards these populist um, causes, candidates in places that were experiencing uh, rapid rates of immigration change. We also just had it a lot in places that were not particularly diverse at all. Uh, you know, if you if you just ran a very simple correlation of how diverse an area is and what the share vote for Donald Trump was, I mean, you would find that places that are quite sparse in the number of immigrants they have or the number of African Americans they have uh, went went for Donald Trump, whereas a place like Los Angeles um, did not, uh, or New York did not, and. To me, it, my my suspicion is that people are absorbing this through the culture. They're absorbing it, you know, through the news in part, Fox News, and and on the other side, um, you know, uh, you know, liberal outlets, uh, ex- really emphasize parts of these uh, cultural flashpoints. Um, but that they're also just experiencing it through the symbols they see on their television, through what they see in their culture, through this sense of what's going on around them. And and if you looked at that. It does look more like a majority minority country. If you look at what Fox News is telling you on the one hand, um, and if you even just like look at what is beginning to happen on on television shows, like there was this moment on Roseanne, um, which then got canceled after Roseanne made those comments, uh, I guess about Valerie Jarrett. But there was this moment on Roseanne where I guess they fall asleep on the couch and then they wake up and they say, "What what did we miss?" And it's like, "Oh, we missed a, a bunch of shows about how black people are just like us." And like the idea was, if you were watching the rest of the the, the nightly sitcom lineup. You were seeing something much more diverse than maybe you know Roseanne and her husband would have uh, preferred, and, and so I just that's why I I agree with you that I would like to see the stuff measured better, but but I do think people underrate the power of the cultural transmission mechanism in part because the cultural transmission mechanism due to due to some of the ideological and also demographic currents of the place where culture is created is way ahead of where the culture is and what it's representing. Yeah, I think you make a, a very good point there, which is really. There's very little of the variation that can be ascribed to local level uh, dynamics, and that that it actually doesn't necessarily matter where you live. I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer to think that people in large, diverse cities uh, are more tolerant necessarily than in smaller places. I mean, this is partly, this is almost entirely a compositional effect. So, London. If you take white working class people in London, they were as likely to vote to leave the European Union as white working class people uh, in the north of England, for example. And so, it's not. Living in the cosmopolitan city, actually, again, it gets back to this idea that your views on, say, immigration and populism are heavily, heavily linked to psychology as status quo conservatism or or authoritarian versus, say, highly open and liberal, and that that is something that is not particularly specific to geography. So I agree with you that the geographical, I mean, in a way, it's also a bit misleading, again, because Los Angeles would have a large number of minorities and people with higher levels of education. clearly not going to vote for Trump. But if you were to take an apple and compare it to an apple, so a white working class person in Los Angeles and a white working class person somewhere in the Central Valley, I mean, I think you'd see pretty similar results. Um, it's also interesting, the thing about you know thinking there are more minorities in the country than there really are, I mean, we know from, from polling, uh, you know, I, I was talking to to a pollster who argued really that that when people feel strongly about an issue is when they greatly overestimate the number of Muslims in France, for example, or, or etc. So it's quite a misleading indicator. Um, however, when you look over time, um, actually, for example, the number as the number of immigrants rises over time, 
in a European country. We know there's uh, studies looked at nine out of 10 West European countries. Uh, the people's concern about immigration went up you know, in tracked it, not a perfect tracking, but moved up in tandem with that increase. So people are able to discern changes in numbers and that that track and that very much open space for right wing populism, which tended to rise on the back of that. So I think there's a number of things going on. The other thing I'd add, by the way, is that if you ask people, how, how worried are you about immigration in your local area? And how worried are you about immigration in the nation? There's a 50 point higher concern about uh, immigration when, when, thought about in a national context. So I think that really reinforces the point that this is a national level, primarily a national level orientation. We've been talking here a bit about concerns about how we define and, and clarify the concept of power. Um, something that, that, that you talk a bit about in the book is a concern that the concept of particularly racism has been uh, overdefined or, or over enlarged. Can you talk a bit about what you think has happened there and, and, and sort of your preferred way of thinking about that? Well, I, there's this idea known as concept creep, which the psychologist Nick Haslam talks about. And it, it's with regard to many different concepts, including things like trauma and bullying and prejudice, but also racism. Yeah, I think that the expansion of the meaning to encompass such things as, say, wanting less immigration or being attached to a national, even national identity, uh, that was occurring, I think, in the period post-1960s. And it plays an important part. And this is one of the ways in which we see a connection between uh, the rise of this left modernism and its spread within the high culture and the rise of national populism. So one of the ways I, I argue that this occurs is when the expansion of the meaning of racism takes a discussion over immigration levels off the table. We see this very clearly in Sweden, Germany, and I'd argue in the US as well, that it becomes something very uncomfortable to talk about because it has the whiff of racism. And at least, and if somebody does talk about it, they can be sort of deviantized as racist. So that close the conversation down amongst the mainstream, and it's a bit like mainstream liquor outlets not providing alcohol, who will a, a black marketeer, and in a way the populist is the black marketeer who is providing what the mainstream parties won't. And in this way, we can, we can argue that the sort of expansion of the meaning of racism actually closed down a very important debate and allowed space for uh, populists to rise. And so I think it is actually very important. So, so what is a, a definition of racism that you think is reasonable? Well, I think uh, a, a sense of superiority or hatred of outgroups, anything that is about sort of demeaning an outgroup uh, or thinking you're superior to an outgroup, or alternatively, uh, race purism, uh, puritanism, not wanting, inter, you know, being against interracial marriage. Also, any kind of racial discrimination, uh, even if it's based just purely on attachment to your own group and favoring your own, if it results in denial of equal treatment under the law to uh, members of minority groups, then I would include that as well uh, under the label racism. So I, I, I think there's quite a broad category there, but I think that the meaning of that term, once we start to get beyond those definitions, and again, I'm very critical of those who don't define their terms clearly and where these things are not falsifiable. You know, a claim that someone is a racist then becomes untestable, unfalsifiable. It's essentially a sacred value. And once once it becomes a sacred value, I think it becomes highly counterproductive. I think we need to reserve that term for real violations of racism. Um, and so we, I, I use the example of Donald Trump, for example, where 
I would say that calling, you know, insinuating the Mexicans are, are rapists or, or Muslims are terrorists is racism. On the other hand, building a wall would not, ipso facto, in my view, be racism. And I think those fine distinctions, I think we need to get to a place where we can make those distinctions. So one of the, the interesting things here to me is that there have been efforts to make these distinctions, but but people don't always like them. So there's this effort, and, and you've gestured at it in, in your comments here, to clarify this idea that things can be structurally or institutionally racist, such that individual people are not being racist, but that the uh, experience of um, African-Americans or Hispanics or whomever, the, the world they're facing is. And so I think a good example of this, and, and the philosopher Kate Mann, who focuses on misogyny and, and gender, likes to say that that she want, she believes misogyny should be understood as something women face, not something men feel, because it's easy to imagine a world where women are quite subjugated and are playing their uh, prescribed social roles well, and no man hates them, um, because why would you? They're wonderful and being there and caring for you and staying at home, and and, and what's the point of hating people who are, who are serving you so so well? And so... One of the the arguments in the space is how do you distinguish between talking about what is in people's hearts from what is in society's bones? And to me, one of the the difficulties in in this collision that, that we're having in society is between these different definitions. And to some degree, I think the the, the language of racism can can get us caught up here. But to, to ask the question this way, you know, if you're someone who's growing up in a area that was redlined. Um, so you're growing up in an area where people for a long time have not been able to build wealth in the way that um, white families were just a couple miles away and there were fewer jobs and so on. Um, you know, is it fair to say that you're growing up in, a, in an institutionally racist context, even if no one in your day to day life, just, you know, stylistically here, has any animus towards you and, you know, nobody who's involved in, in your housing or neighborhood decisions currently um, feels, you know, feels anything but warmly towards you as a person. Right. Well, I guess I am rel somewhat skeptical of the structural racism argument. It's, I mean, I don't deny that racism in the past may have left, say, African-Americans worse off, which has uh, left them worse off today. So that that I think one can prove and one can show. But I think a lot of the what's called structural racism, for example, the example you just gave about residential segregation is actually stemmed from individual at racist attitudes. So if you look at the reason for the segregation of African-Americans, you look at the politics of a city like Philadelphia, for example, white residents organized to keep blacks out of their neighborhoods. Blacks who moved in, who were moved in by the government, for example, uh, protected, you know, had their windows broken. Um, when it came to busing, again, residents were were mobilizing to pr to prevent this, uh, and so all of these things were really generated by agency of individuals being racist. I would argue, uh, and so to the extent now where we're seeing people are no longer uh, expressing hostility, and and we can track this in the surveys in terms of are you willing to live next to a black person, have a black person as a boss, have your child marry a black person? All of those indicators have moved in an extremely favorable direction. I mean, even since the 1980s, when still a majority of whites were opposed to interracial marriage, and now it's sort of below 10%. So I, I guess I'm I'm skeptical of the argument that says there's something structural out there which, which we can't measure at the level of individual attitudes. I, I, again, I think so much of, so many of the examples that are brought up are were actually created or maintained by individual level racist attitudes. So I'm not, again, <laughs> convinced there are the, I think if there are structures, we should be able to measure them and, and correct them. So, so let me try to track that though, because 
It seems to me that, that what you just staked out is a quite ambitiously left position in a way that, that is not the impression I got from, from parts of your book. So something you say a couple of different times is that existing economic inequalities in society are not um, sufficient evidence that there is some kind of institutional or structural racism going on. But you know what you just said is that a lot of these inequalities can stem from past individual racist actions. And the way you want to define racism is equal is equal rights under the law. And so you you get into a situation, and and this is why a lot of people focus on things like the black white wealth gap. You get into a situation where people are being arguably, and and you know I know that there's dispute about this, but let's say being treated equally under the law today, but are operating under generations and generations of what were quite individually racist actions, going back to slavery and then through segregation and redlining and you know Ku Klux Klan terrorism and you know the, these histories that that, that we know. And so then the question becomes what to do about it and that there's this dis discussion, fight, conflict over how to even describe that reality because a lot of people say, well, you know, you, how, you know, there's nothing racist happening to you right now. Um, you know, nobody, nobody's holding you back. And then the counter argument is, well, actually, like the, the context under which I operate has been shaped by this. And in some ways, it sounds to me like you're staking out a position here that would lead you to, to quite radical solutions. But my sense of 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 where you come down on this is not that and 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 more than that is a sense that those kinds of conflicts are are quite bad for society. So so tell me what I'm missing here. Well, I think one one can acknowledge the role of the past in in present day inequality, but then but that doesn't necessarily mean that the solution is some somehow to try to reconstruct past history and figure out who's been hurt more. I mean, the other Issue here, and again, Coleman Hughes is quite interesting on this. Um, the the uh, young African American writer who's had some pieces in Quillette where he talks, in a way, about the sort of disempowering uh, feeling that comes from perceiving oneself uh, as a victim, and that actually, uh, I mean, he talks about the Japanese Americans and other groups that effectively had all their property taken from them and and have managed very quickly to 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 sort of bounce back now. This is not, a, a, you know, to, to, to cast judgment on any one group, and I think it's just important that um, writers such as uh, Hughes are talking about this. But what what we have to ask ourselves: what is the most productive way uh, to to actually resolve this problem and, and achieve uh, greater equality? And maybe trying to build, uh, you know, focusing on um, past victimization and trying to atone for that is maybe not necessarily going to get us. Uh, very far. The other thing I think there's, you know, and but I wouldn't necessarily be opposed uh, to measures uh, to ameliorate that. What, where I think my book is is very much on this question of putting this into a narrative of white oppression of minorities. That is, so if all of the studies seem to show, for example, whether it's police shooting or whether it's police uh, cab drivers picking up uh, African Americans or whether it's um, you know resume studies, that it, there, there is no evidence that. Uh, Hispanics and Asians or even African Americans are less likely to discriminate against African Americans. And so what we have, you know, to actually wedge that into a paradigm that it is about white oppression of minorities is is I think just a way of reading the situation that squashes out a lot of the complexity and actually leads to a more adversarial conversation. Really what what is needed is in a way for for all groups in interaction with all groups to sort of be a bit more mindful. And that I think would just be a more productive way forward rather than 
trying to put things into this majority minority paradigm, which I think can be very adversarial. I mean, I do think those kinds of observations, uh, the ones you're talking about there, those actually speak to why a lot of people try to try to make the points around structural racism um, or or, envir- or or other kinds of environment wide forces because they help explain how everybody becomes part of the same system. It's not just whites or or, or just someone else. But this to me, the, the reason I wanted to focus here for a couple of minutes is that the the way you structure the the account of american politics and 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 other politics as well is quite is 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 a is a collision of competing ideologies we we were talking earlier about randolph bourne and sort of where some of these things come from and one of the things that has been putting political efficacy aside one of the the places where i think i diverge from the account is that certainly in the way these are increasingly central to the media's debate about politics and the media's coverage of politics, that strikes me from my vantage point in it as less a story of ideological change than a story of representation and demographic change. That is something that I've seen just even in my kind of 15, 20 years in the media is that there's been a lot of pressure to do better on representation, um, to have less overwhelmingly male and white staffs. I think that has had a, a real effect even in a pretty short period of time. And something you see as staffs diversify is that there are different concerns and, and different um, ways of looking at this. I mean, you bring up Coleman Hughes and, and in the book you mentioned John McWhorter uh, a couple of times and, and, and there's that ideological dimension of the debate. But there's a lot of African-American writers who've attained prominence in recent years. And, and as you listen to them, there's a very different account being given of American history and also what it takes to, to move forward. And the same is true on gender and the same is true on, on sexuality. And then the other thing is this demand side effect, which is so powerful in an age of algorithmic media where you know you can write all kinds of different things. Some things are on healthcare, some things are on race, some things are on um, the economy. And you know, there's been this very, very powerful pull towards these issues that relate to people's core identities. Um, and that surprised me, but I think you know to take it a little bit even out of politics altogether. If you look at the rise of something like BuzzFeed, it was very much that what they found was if you did a list like 27 things only children of Asian parents know, it went gangbusters. Whereas a lot of other kinds of content didn't. And so you know, you talk in the book a little bit about the ways in which norms have suppressed things like desires for cuts in legal immigration. But there are also ways in which a lot of these debates about what it felt like and is like to be uh, part of a less powerful group in society were suppressed by who had the power to tell those stories and who had the power to create demand around those stories. And as that's changed, I think it's created um, a a change in ideology to be sure, but also just a change in where conflict is located and, and what is the core kinds of political conflict that people often think is in control of the people making the arguments, but is actually... Uh, they're all part of the same structural force as everybody else's. And it has a lot more to do with the, the opening up of both institutions and um, the audience's ability to to generate demand signals to those institutions than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm all for all of the opening up uh, and the representation. I mean, I think obviously sometimes it's been done in a kind of a, a very sort of quota-based way, which I don't think is necessarily helpful um, because you have to, you know, there, there, there are reasons why, say, the pipeline into the media or into the sciences or into tech or whatever, it looks a certain way. And if you simply apply the quotas at the end of the pipeline rather than understanding things going on earlier, then I mean, so, so I'm not, you know, I'm not absolutist. I'm not, I'm not opposed to quotas necessarily, but I think that there is 
too quickly. People have moved too quickly to using them. And I think this creates a certain amount of alienation uh, rather than saying, well, actually, how can we do this in a more unobtrusive way? Maybe we will have resumes where we can't see people's names or you know, even abolishing interviews. I mean, I think there are many other ways that if you were worried about discrimination, for example, that, that would address this problem better. I think it's been one part of my issue with this is at the, the kind of confrontational way in which a lot of this has been done. And, and for example, you know, even diversity training and the way that kind of very much focuses on it's white people that's, that have done it to minorities rather than it's all groups who have prejudicial attitudes about all groups and we all, all need to work together on this. Or for example, the stigmatization uh, you know, of white privilege, for example. And of course, there is white privilege a lot of which arises very much not necessarily out of some orchestrated uh, plot, a coordinated structural force, but really from kind of founder effects. It's a bit like the English language spoken in an American accent. It's going to be pretty hard. You know, that is a privilege. People who have that have, have clearly got a privilege over those who don't speak the language well or, or without an accent. But to actually think that we might come to a time when that no longer is a privilege, uh, I think is pretty fanciful. So some of this, a lot of, I think, what passes for white privilege and people are kind of castigated for, particularly in the high culture, I think is actually very counterproductive. I mean, that's there partly because, yes, it may have been unfair at, th at the founding, but this then took on a life of its own, a bit like the QWERTY keyboard or, or Google being the search engine, the default search engine. I mean, all societies will tend to have these kind of defaults, which which they can't really function without, like an official language. And it may be that that favors one group. Simply, again, not because that group is enforcing, you know, the, the, Google is not necessarily enforcing its position. I mean, it, maybe it is in, in some ways, but it's largely simply the fact of scale economies that people tend to go to it. So I think there has been, again, the subtlety distinguishing between white oppression, uh, white privilege, and, and white identity, or and, and even the white demographic majority. I mean, that's those sorts of fine distinctions I don't see made often enough. So one of the things I do in the book is I show that really, if you look at the white-black income gap in the US, uh, it doesn't have any systematic relationship to how large the white majority is by state. And, and if we look at countries, again, in Latin America, uh, you know, you can take a country like like Panama with a very small white white share or, or Argentina. It doesn't necessarily make any difference to, to, to the level of white oppression or, or inequality between the races. And I think that reflects, again, the fact that these constructs are not actually uh, very related to each other. And yet, in the narrative, they are all part of this sort of structural white oppression paradigm. I think it's just a very a kind of counterproductive way to go. I mean, if if one can show these links empirically, then that's fine. But I just don't see any of that. I actually think this is such an interesting point you make in the book, and it's really interesting data as well that that there that there isn't this kind of simple relationship you one might assume uh, between you know level of diversity and level of income gaps. And I I guess I wonder where where you take that. Right, one way to think about that is that you know it, it takes you in this very structural direction, and another way to think about that is it takes you in a more laissez-faire direction, and it really comes down to, I guess, what you think the cause of the gap is in the first place. But it's funny to me, because that answer came in the same thing about quotas there, and you were talking about pipeline problems. And to me, when I look around at these institutions, journalism being the one I know best, but I know politics pretty well and a couple others, I don't see quotas used almost anywhere. I mean, there's a lot of, there's pressure, but if quotas were used, there'd been a lot more progress in some of these. I mean, you mentioned in the book, actually, Google, which um, has very, very high Asian-American uh, I'm sorry, Asian rate in in its uh, um, 
employee composition, but has very low African-American and Hispanic rates for all of their talk about this stuff. So they're clearly not using not using quotas over there. Um, but I guess that that creates this funny this thing where, you know, something I think you point out a couple times, and I think it's correct, is that there can be a real wide divergence between the rhetoric and the signaling and the outcomes. Um, but where that takes you, where that takes you to believing you know, there should be much more aggressive action or just sort of a giving up on some of the rhetoric is, it seems to me to be one of the great divides in the debate. Yeah, I mean, I I am in favor of trying to get underrepresented groups into you know positions in in leading industries and and and, and the media and, and and so on. But I just think it's done in a very sort of crude way. So, for example, it may be that African origin blacks are not underrepresented. I mean, we know that many African groups have above average income. It may be so. For example, in Harvard, you know, we know that the majority of of black students are not of uh, American. Background. It may be that the problem we have is actually people of, of Black American background. Uh, you know that that should be the focus. You know those sorts of nuances I find find are often missing in this debate where it's just down to sort of racial categories. But in addition, there are also other kinds of dimensions of inequality around you know weight and looks and and uh, class and IQ and all kinds of other things which are actually important too, which could be a part of this debate. Now I'm so I'm I'm not against taking some of these disadvantages into account, but it should be we should be looking at all forms of disadvantage. We could, should be looking at it in a very fine-grained, sophisticated way. I think this it's often again the complexity is collapsed into this relatively simplistic kind of majority minority white white as the bad and, and 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 minority as the victim, which which I don't think is actually really fair to to what's going on. Now what you would do about it. I mean, I think, I don't know, a part of what Coleman Hughes, what I'm convinced by is this idea that, she, that some kind of building up of resilience um, in minority, in historically uh, disadvantaged minorities may be, in addition to, to a clearly uh, lowering barriers, uh, may be sort of a, pr a productive way forward. And one of the problems, in a way, with emphasizing uh, victim, victimhood and that the world out there is, is not going to treat you fairly is it actually reduces that that sense of, of empowerment um, and and so um, you know something in the you know this so-called strength-based approach in psychology I mean how would one again try and improve that that sense of efficacy um, you know that that could be a way for a potential way forward and again I'm just drawing a bit on on Hughes and, and some of these other writers um, you know, and I, again, I think because, for example, if we think about the past, um, there's no question that that you know African the African American experience does involve one of, of victimization. But it's also true that you know if you look at the history of the Jews, uh, you look at the history of, of most groups, they have had uh, you know similar experiences, and right. So it's not as though. Uh, African Americans somehow um, are weaker or more vulnerable, uh, you know. And, and in a way, they shouldn't. You know, they have also been in a position where. So, if you think about Liberia, African Americans ran Liberia. The the African Americans, or sorry, the descendants of African Americans have been conquerors as well, uh, which doesn't make them any better or worse than anybody else. But it might kind of take away this notion that this is a weak population that can't succeed. I don't know. That, that there has to be some way of, of, of strengthening, if you like, uh, groups as well. And I think sometimes that if we allow, if we just go with 
an oppressor victimhood model. We take agency away, perhaps, that we, we kind of make it harder for those voices that are trying to sort of empower their groups, uh, you know, to succeed. So I don't know. I think I ultimately think that it these changes have to come within groups. I mean, we've seen historically, you know, a group like the Irish only very recently have moved from being a kind of underconfident group to being a confident group that's no longer uh, no longer feels that all their problems are, are down to the British and, and imperialism, but actually that they are a very successful group. And part of that was sort of get, getting rid of the clerical education system. It, it was uh, you know the the Celtic Tiger experience, a whole series of things that the Irish went through that transformed them internally. And there are other examples, say of of uh, American Indian tribes, you know the Handsome Lake religion in upstate New York, where Suddenly, this this entire Iroquois group stopped, you know, stopped drinking, became sober farmers just because of this uh, sort of cultural renewal movement. So I think that's sort of, in a way, what's needed is it has to come to some extent from the groups themselves. But I worry that sort of too much of an emphasis in the culture on uh, being a, the groups being weak and, and disempowered uh, may be barriers to that kind of cultural renewal. Well, in a in a general sense, I. Disagree with that. Um, so you know, you quote John Hyde and, and Lukianov uh, in the book on more or less this point that this idea that you know there's a there is a political conversation that has elements of victim and oppressor in it, and that if you take a cognitive behavioral therapy approach to it, that would be bad because it would make you more anxious and, and depressed. And you know, my my read of this is that there are things that are appropriate for individuals to do, and then there are kinds of systematic structural societal analysis that people talking about policy and 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 how and how the country is structured need to do. And those things can be different. Um, but in general, if you structural context in which groups operate have a tremendous effect on them. I mean, you know, to to pull this out of I, I think the, the exactly what we're what you're talking about there, you know, one of the things that's really been observed over the past 30 years is that as rural and kind of exurban white communities have seen some of the same dynamics uh, as Black communities did previously, uh, they have begun uh, exhibiting what people used to call black pathologies, right? You've seen much higher rates of family breakdown. You've seen um, much higher rates of drug addiction. We treat some of that very differently. The conversation over the opioid epidemic has been different than the one over the, the crack epidemic. But, you know, uh, there is a I think it is a dangerous thing to try to ladder up from how it might be most efficacious for individuals to think about their lives and then to how society should think about structuring itself. Um, you know, when you see when you see broad-based inequality um, that, that is replicated and when you see it coming from certain things, you know, and you haven't done that much to deal with it, uh, it, it it's worth, I think, at that point beginning to do a rethink. And the reason I think this stuff can be important is that there's a real collision over whether or not you want to have these conflicts and deal with them directly, or you just kind of think that they they, they need to be stepped back from. Um, and I, I do think a lot of our politics right now, and you see this a lot in debates about identity politics and the political efficacy of that, as these as the demographics change, to me, something that, that is embedded in your book and certainly embedded in, in, in my view of the situation is, is as the demographics change and these different groups have more power to make their claims, 
these are going to structure our politics more and more. Now, you make, I think, a good point here that that often gets brought up, um, that you know there are a lot of kinds of inequality in society. Um, there's inequality of how we treat people who are obese. There's um, disadvantage and discrimination to how we treat people of different levels of attractiveness. There's you know the kinds of IQs people are born with. I tend to think in that that the recognition of suffering tends to help and inequality and oppression tends to help sensitize you towards others. I mean, if you look at people who focus on, um, you know, fat shaming, they tend to be very uh, eloquent on on issues of race as well. You know, think about somebody like Roxanne Gay. But that said, there is a question of like, how do you balance all the ways in which society is unfair and, and, and how do you do it? But again, it, it tends, I, what's so strange to me about that argument is it often, it seems to me, is brought up by people who want to kind of go hands off. And it seems to me to take you in a direction that's much more radical than even most people on the left are willing to contemplate. Well, yes, but, um, you know, I guess I think that part of the problem is that certain axes of, of inequality are being prioritized. And, and the, the reason I think, I mean, the reason I think we actually should take on all of them, you're right, it is probably in some ways a more radical egalitarian uh, approach. But I also think these things are not either or. I mean, it's all about a trade-off being how much equality do you pursue and how do you pursue it? And, and what other societal goals is that bumping up against, whether it be community, I mean, this is sort of what's behind the populism. Uh, debate or whether it be freedom of expression or whether it be um, rational inquiry. So there has to be a trade-off made. You, nobody can have everything they want. Um, but one of the problems in a way is I think if you don't sort of push on all fronts on the equality side, you wind up uh, not actually making the correct trade-off. So certain strands of, in of inequality, race, sex, gender, are pushed very strongly and and lead to, and as I've said in my, my book, I think these have gone too far in, in, in the methods used. And in the the tone that's used, and that this is part of what's what, why you know a lot of Donald Trump voters, for example, political correctness is one of the big predictors of, of of support for Trump. So I think that there are it's gone too far. But in other respects, it hasn't gone you know other axes certainly around around weight and around uh, disability and introversion and all these other things which which hugely affect life actually life outcomes. I, I would certainly think more attention could be paid to those. So I don't, I don't uh, disagree with you on that. But I think it would just allow us to see more clearly what is the trade-off that we're making in pursuing this level of of inequality or, or wanting to reduce equality, um, and that would sort of come up with a clearer uh, lines. Whereas I think there's been a kind of fetishization of certain strands. Uh, again, and an exclusion or ignorance of other strands. And what tends to happen in a way, again, we know this from psychology, is people tend to take their best identity, their highest prestige identity. So somebody might not um, have a race or gender, uh, you know, might be privileged on those dimensions, but underprivileged in terms of class or IQ or something. And they will therefore tend to cling even more to their, say, white or male identity. And so they will feel resentful that their, their forms of inequality are not getting equal billing. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course it does have a, you're right, it is to some extent a, a, an advancement of a left uh, agenda. I'm not, and I'm not a, a libertarian or a right-oriented person, so in a way I'm okay with that. But I just think that the there has been a kind of a sacralization of certain values around diversity, equality, race, and gender, where there has been, I guess I would argue, an overreach and, and, and in the sense that I'm if, for example, these were claims that were backed up by evidence of harms, clear, you could see that certain policies in 
randomized controlled trials or whatever produced better effects, then I'd be all for that. But I see that these narratives are often used, again, without that backing in the evidence. Um, and, and I just worry that, that these tend to take on a, a life of their own, where if you oppose, you know, if you ask questions around some of these claims, uh, things can get quite uncomfortable for you in certain settings. I think it'd be good here to move our, our conversation back to to whiteness because a lot of the book is really is really there, and and something you you say towards the end, which I think is a quite is a quite interesting argument, is that your view is that in the suppression of discussion and advocacy around whiteness itself, it ends up coming out in 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 these other forms. So you write, paradoxically, it becomes more acceptable to complain about immigrant crime, welfare dependency, terrorism, or wage competition than to voice a sense of loss and anxiety about the decline of one's group or a white Christian tradition of nationhood. It's more politically correct to worry about Islam's challenge to liberalism and East European cheap labor in Britain than to say you're attached to being a white Brit. Uh, can, can you talk about that a bit? Because I think that I think that's a quite interesting point. Right. So I think the fact that it is very difficult to express um, an attachment to, say, being a member of an ethnic majority, um, tends to mean one has to find other ways of expressing that, uh, and it, it gets sublimated in in ways which I argue are more negative um, than if you were to just say. I'm attached to our way of life or to uh, my particular ethnic group. I would like to slow down the, the rate of change through immigration. Somebody else might say, well, we need immigration to pay the pensions or, or, or for other reasons. You come to a, 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 a middle ground. I think that would be healthier. People would feel that they'd been heard, not stigmatized. Yes, they're not going to get everything they want. Whereas I think when they're forced to put the argument in Safer terms, it comes out at, you know, for example, um, st Trump stigmatizing uh, Mexicans as criminals, for example, uh, or, or in the UK case, there's been a lot of emphasis on Islam, and that's in, in Europe as well, because you can say, oh, but I'm, I'm worried about uh, Islam restricting civil liberties and, and rights of women and Jews and gays and so on. So that's a suitably uh, kind of uh, a liberal justification. And so it's okay to, to, to really talk quite negatively about Muslims, even to curtail their religious liberty through Burke bans and, and so forth. Um, and, and that's very much stigmatizing, picking on one group, which I think is much, much more dangerous, which fits my, my definition of racism. Um, whereas if you were just to say, we don't dislike anybody, it, we just are attached to the, the, the particular you know, historical ethnic composition of the country. We know we can't preserve it in aspect, but we would like to have a sort of, you know, just a slower change so that people can assimilate to the group and, and so on. That, that, that just, I think, would be more healthy. Um, and, and I just, it's not about isolating and picking on one group. Uh, and, and my worry is we're going in this direction where the way the populist right is moving in Europe in particular is very much in this anti-Islam clash of civilizations direction, which, which really I think is, is much more negative. So, but if you, so one, I want to say that I think this is actually an important, uh, Point. And and I I largely agree with it though I'm not sure I quite agree with it that I would go in the same place you do with it which is I think we have a quite suppressed discussion about what is functionally demographic anxiety and so it ends up coming out in weird ways economic anxiety you know dislike of immigrants and I don't exactly know how you would host this conversation more in a healthier way but it, but it seems to me we have to figure out a way to do it because if not we're never solving the underlying thing but. One thing that I, I would I would point to there, because this is where I think people get afraid of even having it, is that there's a real difference between if you imagine a conversation like this just being a conversation about it versus in order to have the conversation, what you have to do is accept that you're going to somehow, you know, 
completely change, um, you know, the demographics of the country or, or, or the demographics are going, because then you're saying there has to be a tremendous um, change or concession on the part of people who feel they've already made quite a few of them. Um, and so, you know, when I think about, say, how the demographic makeup of America is changing, some of it's coming from immigration. And, and a lot of that is, I think, very important for population growth, which is important for a lot of other things in our society. But a lot of it is coming from just birth rates um, and which are have varying rates across society. And it just, I think there's like an optimistic version of this, which is that you can hear out the concerns and come up with an understanding of the nation and a conversation around the nation that would make people feel more included versus a version where what you're saying is that if you're going to hear out those concerns, you have to actually make quite, quite large concessions that hearing out those concerns is quite, is quite the same as, um, as, you know, losing what many people feel to be a very important policy fight. And I don't know where I don't know where to come down in between those, right? You know, if it would just end up um, that a conversation like that would end up with a a much more toxic and uh, conflictual politics, maybe that's not good. So, do you do you see any version of it where it's actually a, a conversation as opposed to trying to set the country on on quite a different course in terms of who can be here? Well, I, I think first of all, it's important to note that. Policy-wise, we're already there. So, immigration restriction is very much on the agenda across the West. It's already so that's already happening. It's just the question of how it's being talked about. It's being talked about typically as pressure on services. Again, that stigmatizes immigrants or Islam. Again, that stigmatizes a group. If it were, I think, talked about more as people's comfort with rates of change, I, I think that is, in my view, actually a better way to talk about it. So, the policies aren't changing. They're going to remain what they are. The debate's going to remain in a way what it is. Uh, but I think just the, the, the rationales will be closer to what we know is empirically driving this, by the way, which is not pressure on services uh, and concern about that. Um, the other thing is I think it's important to give ethnic majorities uh, a future, in a way, a way of seeing them. So right now, I think the message has been, we're getting more diverse. You got to get used to it. This is much better than the bad old white past. You're the white old past. It's a very negative uh, zero-sum type of message to be hearing. I think the way that I argue in the book to do this is if we can get away from uh, sort of strict racial categorization towards this this more fluid idea of a sort of melting pot absorptive ethnic majority that can see that actually it's not just going to go to zero, but it has a future through intermarriage and, and a maintenance of those traditions and collective memories, then I think that gives gives something positive that these groups, the conservative members of ethnic majority groups can actually latch on to. And maybe that might make them in some ways perhaps more tolerant of, of more immigration, I mean, you know, if they can think, okay, yes, they will come in, but they will assimilate. I mean, I did a, an experiment where, where I showed, you know, 500 people a paragraph about immigrants have historically assimilated in Britain. And, and here are some examples, politicians like Boris Johnson and so on, who, who have immigrant backgrounds. And what you saw there was actually uh, a lot of conservative Brexit voters become quite a bit more relaxed and less uh, supportive of hard Brexit because, again, they're able to see continuity into the future. Whereas if the message is just one of change, diversity, you're the past, I think that's very negative. So I'd also, this is also partly about changing the narrative, the way we speak about majorities uh, that I think will actually help to reduce some of the polarization and the populism. Do you think anybody's doing that conversation well? No, is the answer. Um, everybody on the from the populist right to the left are pretending this is about 
pressure on services for their own reasons. Populist right wants to appear as the, the David to Goliath. They don't want to admit why people are voting for them. And the, and, the, and the left and the center, they only know the policy levers, the traditional ones. And so they want to make this, you know, they don't want to demonize the populist voters. So they claim that they voted for economic reasons. So it's all a kind of, uh, everybody sort of is talking about doing, having a shadow conversation and no one's really having this conversation about identity and, and that I think we need to have uh, about how ethnic majorities are going to evolve, um, which I think will actually help reassure majorities. And really majority reassurance and confidence is going to be the key here to sort of lowering the temperature and healing some of these divisions. So I think, no, I'm, I'm afraid I can't see people having that conversation now. What do you think is a message that would work there, right? If, if, you, were, if you were advising a politician who was trying to reassure an ethnic majority, um, but was not trying to do so by, you know, in a Donald Trump way, promising to shut down the border, what is a message you would tell them to give? Well, I advocate something I call multivocalism in the book, which is that you have a different message to different audiences. So you, you, for example, two conservative audiences that you do talk about what's continuous. You talk about, you know, parts of the, the past. You could talk about Western settlement, for example, in the American case, which a lot of conservative whites have pride in. Uh, and I know it has certain ramifications. In it. There's a whole bloody history too. But um, you could talk about certain episodes that are meaningful to them. But then you could also go to a sort of urban diverse audience and talk about the US as a multicultural society. So it's different conceptions are being validated. Different conceptions of identity are being validated with the idea that there is no single way to think about being American, that you can take pride in Western settlement or you can take pride in uh, a multicultural diversity and change. Those are equally fine ways to be American. I think this 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 validating of a number of different viewpoints uh, and symbolic attachments in a kind of constructively ambiguous way. That's sort of what I advocate because national identity isn't sort of like a hymn sheet that that is fixed. I don't. I think that model of of, of civic nationhood creedal uh, is not really enough because there isn't this challenge of you know a cold war or a war. Um, that rather you have to have this ambiguity where people can read their particular version of identity into uh, into the nation. So I think that's sort of how I would advocate it, is recognizing that diversity of ways of looking at the nation. And I sometimes feel that in this high cultural world, there is really only one approved way, which is, which is the change diversity way, whereas other people might want to see things in a continuous way. It's like a river. You can see it as changing, or you can see it as eternal. And I think we want to ideally allow people to believe what they want to see the river as changing or as eternal and not to force people into one box or the other. So I guess that's kind of uh, the way I, that multivocalism, which I talk about it towards the end of the book, uh, is kind of the way I would hope uh, that this would move. And so a politician, to, to use a recent example like Obama, uh, if I understand you correctly, the critique of someone like Obama would be on the one hand, he was probably quite good at doing an inclusive version of a creedal Americanism, but he did not offer the sort of multivocalism in the way that you could have a quite a sort of non-creedal Americanism and, and, and feel comforted in that. 
yeah, you, you can keep the creedal. I'm not saying no to the creedal. I'm just saying that in an ethnically shifting society, that on its own and without the external pressures isn't enough that you would need to key into the different versions of, uh, you know, people's, people are attached to different symbols, different narratives within the corpus. It's more a, a menu uh, version of the nation, not a hymn sheet. So people select off the menu. I think Obama actually was better, by the way, uh, than Clinton on this. Um, but just I, to don't, I don't of, think anybody yeah, dis to, to, disputes that. <laughs> okay. okay. But but certainly to to sort of, yeah, to, it's okay. Like in the British case, for example, we could talk about John Major, who was very much attacked for, for talking about long shadows on county cricket grounds, which is sort of a traditional symbol of uh, rural England. I think that the landscape and, and history uh, will work with some people um, and diversity and change will work with other people. And I think a politician should be able to ambiguously talk about, uh, you know, rural America and Western settlement and American history in, in one breath, and then also talk about the sort of diversity and change and, 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 and equality in the other breath and and actually not be pinned down on, on having to say one or the other. I think a if a politician was able to key into that, they could make a connection with the uh, conservative white voter. They would feel, okay, at least our version of Americanism is being validated and not sort of repudiated um, without saying that 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 is the only way to be American. No, it's just one version, one set of uh, sort of myths and symbols to, within the corpus, that uh, within the menu that people are attached to. That's okay. And so is... Um, you know, talking about the, the U.S. as a nation of immigrants and, and, and a place of change and, and struggle, etc. So, again, that constructive ambiguity, recognizing that the nation is, in a way, it's an emergent property of peer-to-peer -peer interactions and it changes. It's not the same set of symbols in everybody's head. You recognize that difference. What I feel the problem is that is that what's occurred is that certain imaginings have been sort of ruled out of bounds, ruled as retrograde, and therefore you can't think that way. I think that's not the way we should do this. I mean, so I think there isn't a, it doesn't mean that you, you certainly don't want to say that, um, you know, you have to believe in, in Western settlement and the sort of European heritage that, that that's what makes America. No, no. That what you're saying is that is part of the story. And if people want to imagine that way, that that's okay, as long as they accept that other people will imagine in different ways. You know, one model of all this is that you have this very, very heavily suppressed uh, yearning for the ethnonational state that someone like Trump or something like Brexit can unleash. And what do you make of the fact that in the years since they won their respective elections, I would say neither has really prospered in, in the way that those considering them a phase change or the dawn of a new era might, might expect. Donald Trump is unpopular, um, consistently unpopular, seems to you know be leading his party in a direction that that is putting them in some trouble. Brexit is also very unpopular. Um, you know, is having a lot of trouble getting implemented or, or or passed into into some kind of detailed proposal. Like, what does that say about about the strength or, or popularity of these things once the the dog catches a car, so to speak? Right, right. Well, I think it's important to. I, mean, I would never claim that that right wing populism is just going to surge and surge. There's a limited sort of pool of people with that sort of psychological orientation. But I think it's also important to recognize the sort of stickiness of the su support for Brexit or uh, for Trump, and that therefore that sort of even if Trump loses, I don't actually think the problem in a way is solved. I mean, in a way, you will still have this polarized opposition. It may be expressed in the Senate, where territory is a more important uh, principle than population, or, or in the in the British case, it, it is conceivable that uh, well, I think some version of Brexit will prevail. But even even if not, you've got this division now in the country. So the key question is. 
is not so much about, I think populism has, there's a ceiling to how high it can go, but it's more a question of what do you do with the polarization? And in a way to try and circumvent that, I think we're going to need to look at this ethnic majority anxiety and ways to allay it and ways to understand it in ways that can, can allow people, as I say in the book, we should be able to have, for example, as dispassionate a conversation about immigration rates as we do about tax rates. There shouldn't be the sort of stigmatizing going on on both sides. And, and part of what I'm hoping for is, is just by recognizing that actually it's okay to be attached as long as you understand you were going to, you know, people have different attachments and we have to be able to make compromises. I just think that would go a long way towards sort of taking the sting out of this conversation and, and moving us to a place where we may be able to surmount some of these growing uh, divides, which I don't think actually are going away, even if the the populists don't win elections. If this was handled well in the way that, that, that you consider well, is the future we're living in in America, let's say 50 or 75 years from now, that we have... You know, what scholars would consider a, a, a liberal multi-ethnic democracy, where where no group is the is or thinks of itself as a majority of group, but there's a, a fair amount of harmony. Or is the future we have a world where uh, one group still is able to think of itself as as truly sort of the majority group and the the the, the core of the ethno-nationalist unit, um, but there just is more different kinds of people and 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 harmony through that. Yeah, I think you, the, the two uh, models I talk about in my in my book are the sort of Guyana, Mauritius, heavily multiracial uh, society um, with a common national identity versus the transracial ethnic majority in a place like Turkmenistan, or, or you know where you have had a lot of different racial strains mixing and melting in. Um, I guess I'm more uh, partial to the latter. I think you have issues where you have a kind of you know. With ethnic diversity, you know, with group boundaries, for example, even if they're not hard boundaries, I just think it's it's not a disaster as some people like to portray. We have seen su reasonably successful. Again, Mauritius would be an example of that. Uh, societies from that with that model, but I think, I guess, I I am more partial to the kind of melting pot uh, ethnic majority where because it's just in terms of pub public goods provision getting a, a a society to get behind something such as a welfare state willing willingness to share uh, you know to provide public goods i just think it's it's easier where you have that sort of Common connection through uh, perceived culture and ancestry, and of course, it will not. You know, it won't be some kind of a, a. Clearly, it'll be a mixed race group. But I just think that, and I also think it's probably more likely to happen just because of the pull of the established uh, majority cultures and 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 the amount of intermarriage and assimilation we see. I just think we're unlikely to to have um, a Guyana model anyway. But I just think it would be good to. To see that uh, more positively, to see the melting and the the maintenance of, of a kind of majority in, in, as a positive thing, and it's also something that existing white majorities can look to as as a way of, or you know, as a way of allaying some of their anxieties about uh, about you know shrinking and, and disappearing. I mean, which which fuels, of course, conspiracy theories around white genocide and and all these other things uh, that we've seen. So I just think it's that would be my my preference. Societies tend to, I, I think, function somewhat smoothly, more smoothly, and 
and in terms of uh, welfare provision, that tends to be somewhat better in where you have uh, maybe a, a, a society where there is more of that uh, um, ethnic majority. I think it's a good place to, to come to a close here. So let me ask you the, the final question we always use on the show, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I, I would say the first book really comes from my doctoral supervisor, Anthony Smith, who, who's a historical sociologist. It's called The Ethnic Origins of Nations, and where he looks at uh, ethnic groups in, in, in long-term history over thousands of years and how uh, even if the state that they are attached to collapses or if they have large-scale uh, demographic mixing, uh, that because of the, the, the cultural cores, they, they can survive over long periods. The Jews would be an example of that, for example. The Greeks would be another. Um, so The Ethnic Origins of Nations is quite an interesting book. Um, in terms of... Well, in terms of the left and left modernism, I think Daniel Bell's Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism is a real classic. Um, and, and again, it talks about the emergence of the sensibility in the late 19th century, the, what he calls the adversary culture and how that shapes. And then in the 1960s becomes massified. So I think that's a very interesting way into the whole left modernist uh, phenomenon. And I guess uh, last, perhaps Michael Lynn's Next American Nation, I think would be interesting. Uh, again, sorry to stick with the older books, but um, it was, I think, written in the mid-1990s, and, and Lind really talks about this emergence of what he calls a beige, uh, transracial beige American majority. He, he also talks about how the the right tends to, to want the nation, but, but doesn't want the state, and the left wants the state, but not the nation, and you actually need both. Uh, and I think I'm very, very much on board with that. So those are the three uh, that I think I'd select. Eric Kaufman, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. All right, that's the show. Thank you to Eric Kaufman for being here. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here, to Nino Michella for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Fox Media podcast production. <laughs>